All right, so it's good to have um, Brother James Gearing and his wife, Rashonda, and their son with us tonight, and also Brother um, John Ralph Gearing. Um, James would be John Ralph's um, nephew, is that right? Okay, all right. So they come to us from the, from the Harrisonburg area. Um, John Ralph is involved in teaching there at Berea. He's taught there for 20 years, and James is involved with curriculum development at Christian Light um, publication there. And um, so it's good to have them with us. It's good to um, hear from the men here, us home folks here from time to time, but it's also good to have visiting speakers. Um, so it's good to have them with, with us tonight to speak on why creation makes sense. And I believe, Brother James, you'll be speaking first. All right, so we'll give him, Brother James, our time tonight, and then we'll have a song after he's through, and then uh, Brother John Ralph can finish out the evening. <clears throat> First, I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 1. Start in God's Word. This is a very familiar passage to many of you, and it's maybe sometimes overused for this subject, but um, sometimes that's fine. We don't have to reinvent the wheel, try to come up with something. Sometimes it's good just to go back to the, the basics. Romans 1, starting at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Let's look here at verse 20 a little bit. The invisible things of him of God are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. We're the things that are made. And God has given us the intellect, um, the mind. You know, we, we've been created in His image. And so we can understand things that the animals can't. And we're made, but we can still see the fingerprints of God in creation. And that's what we'll be talking about this evening why creation makes sense, why it makes sense compared to other ideas, other theories out there. And then the next couple of verses, I'll read these. And this is what happens when people don't acknowledge God as creator. Uh, because of that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Uh, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is what happens when people don't acknowledge God as Creator. They start worshiping the, the creation more than the Creator. They start worshiping themselves. Some worship nature, put nature... Um, on the same level or even above man, and this is not right. So now looking at um, why creation makes sense. 
you know, Arlen said that he doesn't doubt that anybody here, you know, doubts the creation story. Well, there was a time in my life that I did. I've always enjoyed science and digging into just how the world worked. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of Christian science material that I could get my hands on. I read whatever I could get my hands on. And so um, I was reading from a lot of evolutionary-based stuff. And some of it I dismissed, but uh, some of it I had a little bit of trouble resisting. And I was starting to have doubts. I was starting to wonder, you know, is creation true? I mean, I'd been told my entire life that it was. Um, and I didn't doubt it at that point, but I was starting to wonder, is it true? Is there really uh, a God or even, um, you know, did he use evolution to create us? I had doubts. It wasn't a crisis, but I just had some questions. And thankfully, I was able to run across some material. And, and ironically enough, some of it was from my Uncle John Ralph. Um, that gave some evidence from, you know, showing that, that there is a reason uh, that we don't just believe in a story. There's evidence that points toward there being a designer, toward there being a creator. And my faith was strengthened because of that. And so that's what I'll be uh, sharing this evening. Now these pieces of evidence, um, they are, you know, data, things that we can see. They don't prove anything. You cannot prove there's a God. You cannot prove that this God created the world. You can't prove evolution is wrong. That's not possible. Um, that gets into a whole big thing about what science can and can't do, and we're not going to get into that this evening. But, but we can take comfort in the things that we can see that very clearly point that there is a creator. It doesn't prove there's a creator, but it gives us something to help strengthen our faith. And that's what Arlen mentioned earlier. Isaiah 45, 18, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. And the phrase here, he formed it to be inhabited, talking about the earth. You know, there are many things that we can see on the earth that show that somebody created it so that it is, uh, so we can live here, so we can so we can thrive. You know, all over the world you can see life everywhere. That's what people are looking for, astronomers and different, they're trying to find life on other worlds. And they haven't found it yet. The earth has been formed to be inhabited. So the first thing I want to look at is something that's very small, something that we don't even think about, we take for granted, that um, if, if things were just a little bit different, life wouldn't be possible. That's the water molecule. The water molecule is, like I said, we don't think about it. You know, 70% of the Earth's surface is covered with water. We have to drink it every day or we're going to die. And all life depends on water. And there's reasons why that is. And I'll talk about some of those. Before we get into talking about that, I want to get into, you know, give you a brief chemistry lesson here. I've taught chemistry a number of years. I enjoy it. Trust me, it's fun. <laughs> anyway, the water molecule, H2O, it's made up of two hydrogens and one oxygen. And the oxygen really wants electrons. It's called electronegative. And so what it does is it pulls electrons from the hydrogen atoms toward itself. What that does is it makes the oxygen partially negative and the hydrogen's partially positive. 
Well, what does that do? Well, it creates something called a polar molecule. Different areas of the molecule are charged, and that is extremely important for the things I'm going to be talking about next. For one, if you have a bunch of water molecules together, they'll attract each other. The negative part of a water molecule will attract the positive part of a water molecule. If you've ever um, taken a water glass, if you're being mischievous and somebody asks for water and you filled it up to the top and then a little bit more, that skin, that water tension, that's because of hydrogen bonds. Those water molecules attracting each other. Water wants to stick together. That's why it forms droplets. Um, that's what forms water tension. Those are hydrogen bonds. Water molecules attracting other water molecules. Now how does this affect water? How does it make it such a special substance? Well, it, attract, it changes the boiling point. And you know, we all have learned since we were in elementary school, the boiling point of water is 212 degrees Fahrenheit, 100 degrees Celsius. Whoop-de-doo, what does that have to do with anything? Well, if you look at similar molecules, so water is H2O. If you look at similar molecules like H2S, hydrogen sulfide, hydrogen sulfide, even though it's a heavier molecule, you would think that it would actually have a higher boiling point. It has a much lower boiling point. Hydrogen sulfide boils at negative 76 degrees Celsius or something like that. And so at room temperature, it's a gas. And so if it wouldn't be for these hydrogen bonds, water would be a gas at room temperature but it's not, it's a liquid. And liquid water is important for life. Whenever people are trying to, you know, um, probably a couple times a year I read something about uh, astronomers looking on Mars for signs of liquid water. If they find liquid water, they think we might find life. Um, liquid water is very important for life. Without it, life as we know it wouldn't be possible. It is a universal solvent. Because it's polar, because it has those charges, it works really well at dissolving other materials. It can dissolve salt, it can dissolve sugar, it can dissolve many other things because it's polar. Those charges help to pull apart materials so it dissolves. And that's very important in your body. You know, your blood is made out of, I think it's about 70% water. And the fact that water can dissolve many of these different substances allows it to carry all these substances through your body. Allows your blood to carry sugar, salt, you know, electrolytes, that sort of thing. Um, also, another thing that we take for granted about water is it expands when it freezes. And the only reason this happens is because of hydrogen bonds. It's another thing um, that comes from hydrogen bonds. When water is liquid, it just kind of sloshes around and kind of does its thing. Each of the water molecules um, they're not tied to the other water molecules really strongly. However, when it freezes, the water molecules have to rearrange themselves because of hydrogen bonding to form this crystalline structure. And that means that water expands by around 4%. And we take that for granted. We think that's just normal. In fact, there was one chemistry question that I asked my students one time. I said, if you would take, um, if you take some liquid alcohol, you know, ethanol, if you would take that and you would freeze a cube of alcohol and put it in, you have solid alcohol and liquid alcohol, and you'd put the cube of solid alcohol in the liquid alcohol, what would happen? Well, they said, well, it would float because they're used to water floating, you know, solid water, ice floating on liquid water. No, that's not what happens. It would sink to the bottom. 
So why is expanding when it's freezing vital for life? Well, if you've ever been on a frozen body of water, what happens? It freezes, and because it floats, it's at the top. That forms an insulating layer that keeps the rest of the water from getting too cold. So your, your fish and your other organisms that live in the water can continue swimming around doing their thing. Um, whereas if, if water was like most other substances, there are only a few other substances that expand when they freeze. If water was like most other substances, it would freeze, fall to the bottom, freeze, fall to the bottom, and continue doing that until your ponds would freeze solid from the bottom up, and then everything would die. <laughs> we, just, we, just, you know, we just take it for granted because it's around us all the time. But if water did not expand when it froze, the oceans would freeze solid, the ponds would freeze solid, and life would be impossible. So all these properties of water allow it to help life be possible, whether it's boiling point, so it's liquid at room temperature, whether it dissolves everything, whether it expands when it freezes, those things all contribute to um, allowing life. Could all these things happen by chance? I don't believe they could. Now let's look at the earth. What makes the earth suitable for life? You know, the, the verse that I read earlier, it says he formed it to be inhabited. So what thing, what characteristics about the earth make it suitable for life? So we'll look at a few here. We'll go back to water again. So like I said, 70% of the earth is covered by water. Water does really good at absorbing heat. And there again, back to the good old hydrogen bonds. It's the same reason. Those hydrogen bonds, they, it takes a lot of energy to break them, to move them around, and so they can hold a lot of energy. And so that's why, you know, when you put a pot of water on to boil, it takes so long to boil. That's why a watch pot doesn't boil, because of hydrogen bonds. This takes so long. So what that does is the earth is covered with water, and it carries heat around. It absorbs a lot of heat. It carries it around. It keeps areas from being too hot or too cold. If you are near the ocean, you'll notice that it's cooler there than it is in land. Um, you know, for instance, Kansas. Have you ever been to Kansas in the middle of the summer? I have. It's rather warm. Have you ever been to Kansas in the middle of winter? I haven't, but I've heard that it's really cold. So how can a place be both really hot and really cold at the same time? Well, it's in the middle of the continent, so it doesn't get the, the warm and the cool air from the oceans to moderate the climate. So that's something that water does. Water cycle, and there's actually a verse in the, in the Bible that talks about, th uh, about this, Ecclesiastes 1.7. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full, unto the place from whence the rivers come. Thither, thither they return again. And so here uh, we read in Ecclesiastes about the water cycle, many years before anybody probably ever really described what the water cycle was. It cleanses and refreshes the water and replenishes it so that way we always have you know rivers and lakes and ponds and so forth instead of the ocean filling up and everything else drying out we have the water cycle it's the right distance from the sun the earth is um, if it was too far it would be too cold all the oceans would freeze and life would not exist except for maybe bacteria 
And if it was too close, the oceans would eventually evaporate and boil off, um, would probably turn into something similar to Venus. The planet Venus is so hot that you can actually melt lead on the surface. And there's so much pressure on the surface of Venus that uh, I'm thinking it's maybe 20 or 30 atmospheres of pressure, something like that. Um, they've sent space probes there, but they can usually only last an hour or two before they just implode from the pressure. Oh, and it's covered in acid. <laughs> Length of the day. You know, we have a 24-hour day, approximately 12 hours of day you know, of sunlight, 12 hours of night. Of course, that varies due to the seasons. Um, but that allows the Earth to cool off. You know, so we have the sun shining on us all day long. It gets really hot. The sun goes down. It cools off. The next day, it warms back up again. There are other planets that have much longer rotational periods in the Earth. For instance, Venus and Mercury takes them hundreds of days to make one revolution. And so that one side is sitting there baking in the sun the entire time. And so it allows the Earth to keep from getting too hot, and also the backside doesn't cool off too much to get too cold for life to survive. So something as simple as the length of the day. The magnetic field. Most of the inner planets, so Mercury, Venus, and Mars, they do not really have any magnetic field to speak of. I'm not sure about Venus. I can't speak to that for sure. Um, but Mars, definitely not. Uh, the moon doesn't either. Now, why is this important? Well, there are all these particles coming from the sun, particles that could be very damaging to life, could destroy your DNA. But the magnetic field deflects these particles. Also, this is kind of somewhat of an aside, but um, scientists have been measuring the strength of the magnetic field for 100 years or so. And, and they've noticed that the strength of the magnetic field seems to be decreasing. And so, although there do seem to maybe be some other possible explanations for why it's decreasing at the rate that it is, if you kind of rewind the clock, it seems that it probably indicates that the Earth is only thousands of years old rather than millions or billions, if it's decaying at its current rate. The atmosphere. You know, the, the air we breathe, um, that's another thing that points toward a creator. You know, most of the atmosphere is unreactive nitrogen. You know, it doesn't really do us any good. We breathe it in, breathe it right back out. It's about 80% nitrogen. And, of course, we have oxygen. Oxygen is the gas we need to survive. If there was a little bit less than what we currently have, we wouldn't be able to survive. It wouldn't be enough oxygen for our bodies to make the reactions go. You know, when you're breathing in oxygen, what's that oxygen doing? Well, your body is using that to react with your food to produce the energy you need to live, to make your heart beat, to make your muscles work. If there was not enough, your body couldn't make those vital reactions work. If there was too much, I think I've read somewhere that even just a couple percent more oxygen, instead of around 20% oxygen, if it's 25% oxygen, it would drastically increase the incidences of forest fires and things like that because fires need oxygen to survive. One of the best ways to kill a fire is to deprive it of its oxygen. And if you want to make a fire burn really hot, add oxygen. So it's not too much that, you know, you drop uh, a match on the floor, the entire floor doesn't go up in flames because it's 20%, not 30% oxygen. 
Carbon dioxide, that's the gas we breathe out. It's also a very important gas for plants. Without carbon dioxide, plants couldn't use photosynthesis to make glucose and other compounds which are necessary for all, for all life. It wouldn't be for plants we couldn't survive. Ozone. Ozone at ground level is a bad thing. It's um, pollution. But up in the stratosphere, we have a layer of ozone, the ozone layer. You've no doubt heard about it. And it protects us from UV rays. It does a really good job of doing that. If it wouldn't be for the ozone layer, uh, we would have, it would damage the DNA in our skin, give us skin cancer. But thankfully, it's in the stratosphere, not down here. If it was down here, ozone, even though ozone is made of oxygen, it's very reactive. You breathe it in, it starts ripping apart molecules in your body. And so God designed the atmosphere that there's this protective layer up where we're not going to breathe it in. The atmosphere also protects us from not just from UV rays, but from cosmic rays. So these really, really powerful rays, much, power, you know, much more powerful than UV rays, um, come into the atmosphere, hit air molecules, and are blocked. You don't have to worry about it. And then another thing that the atmosphere does is it holds in heat. You look at some of the other planets or the moon, and the side that's facing the sun can be above the boiling point of water, you know, 200 and some degrees, just on the moon. The moon is the same distance, relatively the same distance from the sun as we are. But because it has no atmosphere, the side facing the sun is above the boiling point of water, and the side away from the sun is, I think, maybe negative 150 or 100 or uh, 200 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's a huge difference. So the atmosphere, you know, all day long, there's sun coming in, and the atmosphere is like a big blanket. It holds in the heat all night long until we can face the sun again and start warming up. Um, it keeps the side facing the sun and away from the sun having a huge difference in temperature. The moon, you know, uh, Earth is really interesting planet. It's an interesting example. It, its moon is much, much larger in comparison to its size than any other planet. You know, Jupiter has huge moons, but in comparison to the planet, they're pretty small. The, the, uh, our moon is relatively large compared to other moons in the solar system. But it has some very important things that it does. Uh, the moon and the sun create the tides, and the tides are very important in helping to move water in the ocean, kind of move things around, help circulate oxygen and nutrients for the for the plants and animals that live in the ocean. You know, most of the oxygen you're breathing right now probably came from phytoplankton in the ocean, not from the trees out here. The majority of oxygen comes from ocean life. It also keeps the earth from wobbling too much on its axis. If you've ever taken a top and spun it, for a little bit, it stands upright, and then it slows down and starts wobbling like this. Well, the pull of gravity from the moon helps to hold the Earth in its orientation, so its, its tilt doesn't vary that much. You know, if the moon was not there, the tilt of the Earth would drastically vary, and that would cause huge changes to our seasons, possibly um, make the equator get blazing hot and the poles freezing cold. Also, the tilt of our 
uh, planet is very important. It, of course, causes the seasons, but the seasons do some things we don't really think about that are important for life. It helps to move heat around the globe. You know, it, you know, right now we're getting into winter for the northern hemisphere. It's starting to warm up in the southern hemisphere. I have a friend that lives in Peru, and they're starting to plant their garden down there. It helps to move heat around. So one part of the earth doesn't freeze, the other part doesn't fry. It also helps the wind patterns, and the wind helps move around the heat as well. The sun. <clears throat> the sun is a very somewhat of an unusual star. It's not that big. There are many stars that are much larger than the one we have, but there's some interesting things about it to make, uh, make it suitable for life. Most stars are much smaller and cooler than our sun. Our sun is, is not a big star, but it's bigger than most, and so it puts out a decent amount of heat. Many stars, their energy output varies drastically. It'll get really hot and then cool down and then get hot and cool down. And you can imagine what that would do to our climate if that would happen here on Earth. But our sun is extremely stable. Its energy output, it varies a little bit, it fluctuates a little, but it's dramatically stable compared to many other stars out there. Also, other stars have what are called super flares, where they throw out these uh, things of energy and matter, and that would very likely damage our atmosphere and damage us if that happened near Earth. But our sun doesn't have these super flares. <clears throat> it seems that it's the perfect sun for life to survive on Earth, you know. And then this one here is not really evidence for creation, but it's, it's, uh, it shows that God is creative. You know, he likes to make things that are beautiful. I'm not sure if any of you all saw the solar eclipse that happened, I guess it was back in 2017. Uh, my wife and I went to Kentucky to see it, and it was quite amazing. You know, it seems that the Earth is the only place where that happens in the entire solar system. The sun is about 400 times larger than the moon, but it's about 400 times further away than the moon. And so it'll, the moon will just perfectly block out the sun to where you can see the corona. That's the only place it happens in the solar system. You know, I just wonder if, you know, maybe God just wanted to show just for a few seconds, show us his glory using the eclipses. Now I want to move on to some things from astronomy. I'm going to read a few verses from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. So what can we get from this? God said, let there be light, and there was light. What is light? Well, light is energy. It's photons. He also created the universe. So he created energy, he created matter. He created it from nothing. He just spoke it into being, and there it was. And 
scientists would say, and we would agree with them, that we have never been able to create matter and energy from nothing. We simply can't do it. Uh, it's called the law of conservation of mass energy. It's a law in science. And so it makes much more sense that some being outside of our physical reality created everything than it just came from nothing. Because everything we can see in the world around us, everything has a beginning, everything has a source, but then they say it came from nothing. And so it makes much more sense, you know, creation makes sense that all this stuff around us had to come from somewhere. Somebody had to create it. If you take everything and trace it back, everything has something else. It came from something else. You trace it back all the way. And so you trace everything back to the universe and then where did the universe come from? Well, it came from nothing. No, that doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> I actually want to give you a little bit of history of the Big Bang Theory. Of course, that is the current theory that they use to explain where the universe came from, that there was this singularity, this point of uh, all the energy and matter that was, that's now in the universe, and it just exploded in what they call the Big Bang. But what's interesting is where this theory came from. They didn't just, you know, scientists didn't just think it up. Well, let's just come up with a theory. We'll call it the Big Bang Theory. This is the best thing we've got. So I want to give you a little bit of this history. So before the Big Bang Theory was developed, they just believed the universe had always existed. Um, you know, they didn't believe, well, not all the scientists believe this, but the ones that didn't believe in God just figured, well, if it wasn't created by God, then it just always existed. However, an astronomer, Edwin Hubble, uh, in the early 1900s, he, he noticed that there were these galaxies that he could see very far away, and they were moving away from each other, just moving extremely fast away from each other. So if something, and like everywhere he looked, the galaxies were moving away from us. And so he realized that well, him and some other astronomers realized that if they're all moving away, then at some point, if you rewind time, they must have been at one place. So in a sense, they realized that there must have been a point of creation, a point where everything came into being, and now they're moving away from each other. One of the astronomers, I can't remember his name, but he was kind of making fun of this idea. He said, this, uh, this theory about this Big Bang, he was making fun of it. What's interesting is him making fun is what stuck, the name the Big Bang Theory. Um, there was a lot of resistance to this idea. They didn't like this idea that there was a moment of creation because that lined up with creationism. And in fact, some of them said that the Big Bang Theory was simply creationism in disguise. But there was absolutely no way to argue with the evidence. They could see that, the, that everything was moving away and so they couldn't argue with it. They had to say there must have been a point at which everything popped into existence, but they called it the Big Bang Theory and said that instead of a creator, it was what they called a quantum fluctuation or something like that. The theory continues to change. Um, so anyway, all these things point toward a designer. Like I said earlier, they don't prove there's a designer, but they, they lend a lot of evidence to there must have been a creator. All the, all the properties of the water molecule, 
all the things that had to line up just right for earth to be habitable all seems to point toward there being a designer. The existence of the universe points toward there being some all-powerful being outside of our physical reality that must have created everything. Creation makes sense. Greetings in the name of Jesus, the one by whom all things were made, 
and without him was not anything made that was made. Please turn to Psalm 8. We just sang about the evening star. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but I noticed it. I saw the evening star this evening. And there were two bright stars in the southwest sky. One of those stars we refer to as the planet Jupiter, and the other is the planet Venus. Venus was the brighter of the two. But Jupiter is the larger of the two. Jupiter is around 11 times, or is over 11 times wider than the Earth, and it's over 300 times more massive than the Earth. And although Jupiter is quite large, the sun is much larger. The mass of the sun is over a thousand times the mass of Jupiter. And although the sun is quite large, as there are stars that are larger than it, and it's extremely bright, and there are stars that are brighter than it. Uh, the brightest star at the feet of Orion is around 40,000 or 50,000 times brighter than the sun. And the reason it doesn't look that bright is because it's so far away. So if the sky is clear this evening and you see Orion rising in the east, look at its feet. The two stars there, the brightest of the two, is perhaps 40,000 to 50,000 times brighter than the sun. As we consider these impressive objects that God has made, it's good for us to remember the words of David here in Psalm 8, starting at verse 3. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. The work of thy fingers. Notice that terminology. As we think about the amazing characteristics of the work of God's fingers, it should be clear to us that an awesome God created the universe. Look at verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Now these planets, Venus and Jupiter, they don't stay at just one spot in the sky. They move relative to the other stars out there. And it takes Jupiter nearly 12 years to make its path through the sky. Uh, Venus travels a very special eight-year cycle. Uh, when Venus goes around the sun 13 times, the Earth goes around the sun almost exactly eight times. And so if you would take a picture of Venus in the sky, then eight years later, on the same day of the year, Venus will be very close to where it had been eight years before. And that amazing eight-year cycle is a puzzle uh, to scientists. It just seems like a coincidence, and a magazine article referred to that as a wonderful coincidence you know, that Venus follows this path. I believe it makes more sense that an amazing creator created Venus. And so Jupiter and Venus, they move relative to the other stars, and the ancients, um, when they saw these stars that moved relative to the other stars, they would have referred to them as wandering stars, and they would have seen several other wandering stars known as, that we would know as Mercury, Mars, and Saturn. Today, we call these objects planets, and currently the planet Saturn is visible a little bit to the east of Jupiter, and in December of next year, uh, Jupiter will pass Saturn because Jupiter moves through the sky faster than Saturn does. The ancients were puzzled by the motions of these wandering stars. As Jupiter moves through the sky, sometimes it goes backwards for a little while. And so people tried to give an explanation for this. 
You know, we were created in the image of God. We have within us a sense that there is order in the universe. And so people had different ideas. One idea was that the earth and the wandering stars orbited the sun. Another idea was that everything just orbited the earth. And which idea was correct? Well, they didn't really have any good way to prove which idea was correct. Uh, by introducing complexities into their ideas, they could arrive at a fairly a decent prediction of where objects would be in the sky. And then Galileo looked at Jupiter with a telescope, and he saw moons next to Jupiter, although at the time he maybe didn't realize they were moons. He would have just thought they were stars. And these stars moved with Jupiter. They moved back and forth relative to Jupiter, but as Jupiter moved through the sky, they moved with it. And so he eventually concluded that just as the Earth has a moon, these, that Jupiter has moons that go with it. And if you have binoculars, you can observe these moons and, and watch their progress. And so the motion of these moons showed that there were objects in the universe that orbited something other than the Earth, because it was clear that they orbited Jupiter, not the Earth. And so that, along with various other ideas, helped to demonstrate that the objects in the solar system don't orbit the Earth except for the moon. The moon is the one that does. Everything else orbits the sun or our moons that orbit the planets. And astronomers tried to use circles to describe the motions of these objects, uh, but that didn't quite give the best predictions always. And finally, an astronomer realized that another type of curve would do a better job of, of explaining this motion. And he used a curve that had been studied by the Greeks before the time of Christ. And so he was able to demonstrate mathematical order in the motions of the planets. And the name of that curve is the ellipse. So the universe is very orderly. That order isn't always obvious. We may need to do some searching. Uh, the astronomer who discovered that the ellipse describes the motion of uh, the planets in the solar system, he, he did a lot of searching before he finally figured that out. Now, some people who have not accepted the plain teaching of the Bible, they've puzzled over the fact that we are able to understand this order that's out there. Uh, one scientist wrote, the enormous usefulness of mathematics in the natural sciences is something bordering on the mysterious. So the mathematical order of the universe was a mystery to him. And he also wrote, it is not at all natural that laws of nature exist, much less that man is able to discover them. Why did he have these ideas? Well, he arrived at those conclusions because he held on to a false view, probably multiple false views. Listen to something else he wrote. Certainly, it is hard to believe that our reasoning power was brought by Darwin's process of natural selection to the perfection which it seems to possess. Uh, yes, that would be hard to believe. But thankfully, we don't need to believe Darwin. Uh, we can believe God who has made man in his image. And God made man a little lower than the angels. And man has an understanding, is able to understand, at least in part, the order in the universe. And since the Lord is a God of order, it makes sense that laws of nature exist. Since God created the universe and created man, it makes sense that we can ab are able to understand in part what he has made. Here's one more thing this puzzled scientist wrote. The miracle of the appropriateness of the language of mathematics for the formulation of the laws of physics is a wonderful gift. 
Uh, yes, it is a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful gift from God. Students who are studying algebra might not believe that always, but mathematics is a wonderful gift from God. For those of us who believe what the Bible says, it makes sense that we are able to understand in part what has been made. Albert Einstein did not believe the Bible, and he wrote, one should expect the world to be chaotic, not to be grasped by thought in any way. Although his flawed belief system led him to that conclusion, he had an innate understanding that there is order in the universe. And he wrote to an, a friend who was also a scientist with whom he disagreed. And here's what he wrote to this scientist. He said, you believe in the God who plays dice and I in complete law and order in a world which objectively exists. And so in spite of his wrong beliefs, Albert Einstein seemed to have an understanding that there is order in the universe. And for those of us who believe the Bible, that makes sense. And there's much evidence for this order. The motions of the planets and the moons is just one example of that. And the moons of Jupiter move in such an orderly way that they've been used as a clock. Uh, back before the days of quality clocks and watches that could keep good time on a rocking boat, uh, people used made use of watching the moons of Jupiter through a telescope to try to figure out what time it was in their homeland where they had come from. Uh, they could observe the stars and figure out what local time was, but they didn't have a good way of figuring out what time it was at home. And so by carefully observing the moons of Jupiter, and they would take along information what these moons were supposed to do at different times at home, and they could figure out what time it was at home. And then by using that information, they could figure out how far east or west they had traveled. And by looking at the North Star or other types of stars, they could figure out how far north or south they had traveled. It's because they wanted to know where they were on the Earth. Now, when people are on a boat, it's not very feasible to look through a telescope at Jupiter and its moons. And so sometimes they would make use of the Earth's moon. Uh, by carefully observing the motion of the Earth's moon through the sky, uh, they were able to get a, somewhat of an understanding of what time it was at home. But Thomas Jefferson seemed to think that observing the moons of Jupiter provided a more accurate results. So our creator is a god of order, and we should be thankful for that order. And if we believe the Bible, that order makes perfect sense. Now we've been thinking about some big things. Whether we observe big things or small things, creation makes sense. Let's think about some small things now. Our muscles have lots of tiny fibers in them, and tiny fingers on one type of fiber reach out and grab a hold of another type of fiber and they pull and it makes our muscles work. And so these are essentially tight little motors in our muscles that make our muscles work and make us work. And also in our cells there's little motors that transport cargo. Nerve cells can be quite long and sometimes something that's made in one part of the cell needs to be transported to another part. So there's tiny fibers in the cells and there's little machines that have two feet and they walk along these little fibers and transport cargo. And then there is an amazing motor that rotates. That's right, we have spinning electric motors in us. Animals have spinning electric motors in them. Plants have spinning electric motors in them. A blade of grass might look simple, but it contains within it rotating electric motors. And these motors are extremely small. If you think about the average distance your fingernail grows in 10 seconds, 
That's the approximate width of one of these motors. <laughs> the purpose of these motors is to recycle a special chemical uh, that provides energy for our cells. And when it provides energy, uh, several atoms break off of it, and then one of these spinning electric motors helps to put the chemical back together again so it can go uh, provide energy again. And through a complex series of steps, the food that we eat and the oxygen that we breathe uh, provides the energy that makes these motors spin. And so as we consider these motors, it should be clear someone designed them. Supernatural creation makes sense. Uh, the design of these motors is obvious if we are willing to see it. Uh, one of the men who studied the structure of DNA made a statement that is very astounding. Uh, listen to what he wrote. Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Thankfully, we don't have to travel down that path. We don't have to convince ourselves that the things we that look designed aren't designed. We can accept the obvious truth that motors are designed. Have you ever seen a motor that was not designed? A creation makes sense. And if we observe people who are refusing to accept what's obvious, we should let that be a warning to us. Have you ever read the Bible and come to a passage of scripture and you didn't quite want to accept what was obvious? You know, sometimes, you know, we might try to convince ourselves, oh, maybe that passage is just a little too difficult to understand. A century ago, a teacher by the name of John Wayland wrote a book with the title, Christ as a Teacher. And in that book, he wrote these words. The things we do not wish to believe are always hard to understand. Uh, that might be somewhat of an exaggeration, but it does point out one of the weaknesses of our fallen human nature. And if we refuse to accept obvious truth, we may end up speculating about some strange things. Uh, this scientist I mentioned who studied uh, the structure of DNA, helped to discover the structure of DNA and who said that biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed but rather evolved, it appears he realized that it was extremely improbable for life to arrive by natural processes on the earth, to arise by natural processes. And so he speculated about life coming to the earth from somewhere else in the universe. And he even speculated about life coming here in a rocket ship sent by an alien civilization. So in contrast to such speculation, supernatural creation makes sense. Now this scientist studied DNA, which is an amazing substance. It contains lots of information. It contains instructions for making these spinning electric motors we talked about. It contains instructions for making the motors that carry cargo in your cells. It contains instructions for making the motors that make your muscles work. And we should remember that instructions that are on that DNA came from somewhere. Whenever you see an instruction manual, it did not appear by random processes. And so as we consider all these instructions that are in living things, when God made these machines at the beginning, he made the machines and he also made the instructions. And these instructions get passed from generation to generation so that each new generation can make the machines. Even though we in our minds might not be able to understand the instructions our bodies just automatically make these machines because those instructions are there. And for those instructions to get passed along, they need to be copied. And so the creator designed a copying machine. 
And now the copying machine doesn't work like a Xerox machine, but it does do a good job of copying DNA. And it is very rare for the copying machine to make a mistake, and if it does make a mistake, then there is a special repair machine that looks for mistakes and corrects them most of the time. Now we do live in a fallen world and occasionally a mistake uh, gets made. It's been estimated that the copying machine and the repair machine working together are able to make a copy that is accurate 99.9999999% of the time. Listen to what one secular textbook says. Given the demand for accuracy during DNA replication and the length to which cells go to achieve this precision, it is not surprising that cells have also evolved elaborate protein machines to scan the finished product for mistakes. In contrast to such a view, supernatural creation of these elaborate protein machines makes perfect sense. So God made these machines in the beginning and he placed instructions in the DNA so that our bodies could continue making these machines. So D DNA contains instructions for making things. And for these instructions to be of any use, there needs to be able to be, they need to be able to be read. And so God made machines that can read DNA and can do what the instructions do. And when the instructions need to be read, uh, first a special copying machine makes a temporary copy on something called RNA, and then that RNA goes to a machine that can then read the RNA and make whatever needs to be made. And this enables a rapid production rate because one piece of DNA, can, a lot of RNA copies can be made off of that, and then each RNA copy can be read by many different machines that make whatever needs to be made, and so there, a lot of things can be made really fast. Uh, some cells in our body make hair, other cells make bone. Both cells contain the same information in the DNA. And so why do they make different things? Well, there's information outside of the DNA that controls how the DNA is read. And so again, that should be evidence of a wise creator uh, designing us and everything around us. And one of the amazing features of DNA is its ability to store a lot of information in a tiny space. Uh, most of the cells in your body contain DNA from both your mother and your father. And most of this DNA is stored in kind of a tiny ball uh, that's called the nucleus. Now, not only does the nucleus contain DNA, it contains some other things as well. It contains uh, machines for copying DNA, for example, reading the informa copying information off of it. And the nucleus is smaller than a grain of sand. Uh, normally, the human eye is not able to see something that is as small as the nucleus. And if the DNA in that little tiny ball were all formed into a single strand and stretched out, it would be a strand over six feet long. And somehow that DNA is efficiently stored in that tiny little ball that is too small for us to see under normal situations. And specialized proteins help in that. So creation makes sense. And theoretically, the DNA in the nucleus of a human cell could store over a gigabyte of information. That is, it could store more than a billion bytes of information. And all of this DNA inside that tiny ball. Now think about how information stored on a CD or a DVD 
Uh, these discs store information in a spiral. And on a standard CD, the spiral track is around three and a half miles long and stores less than a gigabyte of information. And on a standard DVD, uh, which stores information more efficiently, the spiral track is around seven and a half miles long and can store between four and five gigabytes of information. And if information could be stored in a similar way by using a spiral of DNA on a similar disk, uh, the track could be over a thousand miles long and store a million gigabytes of information. And so as we consider the astounding storage capacity of DNA, truly creation makes sense. One article says, DNA's simple and elegant structure seems to be the work of an accomplished sculptor. Then it goes on to say that it is the result of random chemical reactions in a simmering primordial stew. In contrast to such thinking, supernatural creation of DNA makes sense. So whether we look at large things or small things, or things in between, creation makes sense. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth.